Hello, everybody. Wanted to give a, a quick prerequisite before you listen to this episode. We uh, had some audio issues this week, and Travis's channel wound up picking up an echo. So there is a little bit of a... Well, I guess, again, the best way to say it is an echo with his voice as he goes throughout the episode. We hope it's not too much of a distraction. We are working through it to make sure it doesn't happen again. But uh, if you do hear it, it's not your fault. It's ours. I'm sorry, and we'll do better. Hello, and welcome to an Impressionist episode of the Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brent Mosier and Travis Santana. Today we'll be reviewing 1999's The Thomas Crown Affair. We'll be jumping into some five points of inspection with Die Hard Another Day, Leary of Leary, A Certain Musk, Art of the Steel, and Anatomy of a Relationship. But before we do, let's go ahead and check in on the shop. Hey man, uh, I know you've been talking about boosting the uh, the shop's profile. Yeah, I actually got the designs back from t-shirts. Uh, they're looking good. You, you have any more ideas? As a matter of fact, I do. I'm thinking about an an ad campaign, like a like a music video. Ooh, I, I like it. Go on. I've already got some people on board. You know the customer John, the one with the Ferrari. He said we could use it for the shoot. Oh. I... I mean, that's awesome, but we've got a sponsorship with Chevy of Hollywood, so I don't think they would let us use the Ferrari. Uh, damn. Um, okay, well, I've got a guy who works with Michael Bay. Can we can we shoot the commercial on the cheap, you think? Uh, well, the thing is, I signed an agreement with Dennis Villanova, and uh, by the contract, he has the right to shoot all of our promotional material through 2023. Fuck. I mean, hey, we can still shoot it. I mean, it, it'll still be good. <sighs> Never mind. It would, it, it would just be a compromised version. Uh, speaking of that, do you, do you just want to go ahead and review the Thomas Crown Affair? classic game of cat and mouse between a wealthy playboy and a tantalizing detective begins after a prize painting is stolen from an esteemed museum. The more the two try to outwit one another, the closer they seem to find themselves. As passions grow, is it possible for either one of them to win, or is it possible they've painted themselves into a corner? Alrighty, Travis. Before we jump into five points, I'd love to get a quick diagnostic from you. What did you think of, I am saying 1999, 1999's The Thomas Crown Affair? I did watch the correct one. <laughs> uh, the greatest robbery slash theft that Thomas Crown ever pulled was stealing our time by watching this movie. <laughs> That's that's my intro. So what what did you think, Brett? So I think initially after watching this movie, I was pretty much in line with you. Um, and I was just like, this movie is bonkers for the wrong reasons. Um, but in talking with somebody else about it who had never seen the movie, I was talking about like, well, is it good? And I was like, ah, I don't know if I would say that. And they were like, well, was it fun? And I'm like, 
okay, if I'm going to look through through that lens, I think there are parts of the movie that are fun. Um, I think my favorite part of the movie, uh, which we'll get into in five points, is is probably the um, the final theft, if you want, even though that one makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and really, more than anything, what this movie does for me is make me wonder why Pierce Brosnan was never cast as Batman in the 90s. That's really what I left this movie thinking. I'm eager for you to point out the fun parts because I, I didn't find any. And even the the end heist, some of the stuff is technically cool. Like, ooh, that's clever the way they pull this off. But because it never feels any sort of realistic to me, yeah, I guess if this were a Batman movie, I would believe it a little bit more, but it's not. So, uh, yeah, go with the five-point inspection where you will. All right, so let's... I, I actually want to kind of reverse it up with how we listed it out. I want to start with the anatomy of the relationship because the whole movie is built off of Pierce Brosnan's character and, um, oh, you're going to... And uh, Rene Russo's character, Catherine and Thomas. And I think it is one of the weirdest fucking relationships I've seen in a movie. Um, and I'll say this. So Thomas Crown is just, you know, he's the playboy. He seems to have everything going for his life to the point where he's bored. So he has to resort to stealing art. And then Catherine is apparently an art bounty hunter who goes in, in, and investigates the art world. So, um... My main problem with their relationship is Pierce Brosnan is basically trying to say that she's a worthy adversary to him, but he outwits her every step of the way. And I feel like they try and portray Catherine as being super smart, but she never has a one-up on on Thomas throughout the entire movie. He's always one step ahead of her, so I don't understand how she is a the, the worthy adversary. And I'll go on to say as well that I think the usage of the psychiatrist is incredibly lazy in this movie. Cause I feel like that's at a certain point they were writing this movie and realized the same thing. Like it makes no sense other than just pure lust. Why Pierce Brosnan's character has any interest in Catherine whatsoever, other than she's kind of a toy to him. So they interjected the psychiatrist so that we could try and see the inner workings of his head where he actually found her as like a strong independent woman and that's in a worthy adversary and that's why he was attracted to her because outside of that i feel like he just runs circles around her yeah it's interesting that you mentioned the psychiatrist i don't think that was a last minute ad only because that's one of the Easter eggs for the original Thomas Crown Affair is to cast Faye Dunaway again. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of the inner workings of Thomas Crown, those are the only scenes that do anything to let you know even what his motivations could possibly be. I was very intrigued by the movie at the open with, you know, can a woman trust you? Well, only if her... Or her goals are closely aligned with mine. And then Faye Dunaway comments on, well, what about society at large? And he kind of just smirks. But I mean, his views on society at large are to, or at least he, he manifests them in stealing paintings just for fun. And I don't understand why that's appealing for Rene Russo's character, Catherine Banning. I, I don't get 
the dynamic of the relationship at all because that like you said it's just it's only lust exactly this movie like portrays nothing else Yeah, and it's just even that to like, you know, they even try and make out like both of them are very like smart, like a the detective and the, the criminal, like that classic cat and mouse. But I'm like, Pierce Brosnan's genius comes from the fact that he's fucking rich, right? Because I mean, it is the most elaborate art heist of all time that takes place at the beginning of the movie. And I'm just like, it literally is like they just tried to make an art thief James Bond. Like, oh, he's got the super reinforced briefcase that also projects heat to take out the... And I'm like, all of it's just like, it just gets more and more convoluted the more it goes into And oh, he hired, you know, uh, people that don't speak English. And it was, you know, and not only that, he's going to turn on them, but they're not going to know. And I'm like, I was waiting for that to come back up later in the movie. And like, so... All of his is it's just gadgets and, and his richness is what makes him clever. Not that he's actually clever at any point, you know? But what's odd is, and this is why I mentioned it in the open, they basically have him playing half James Bond, half Batman, but they literally had to take steps not to have him betray James Bond too closely because of contractual obligations. Like, he, if you'll notice when he's dancing, his... Uh, his bow ties untied because they didn't want it to have it tied because that would look too close to James Bond. And not only is it not tied, it's white instead of black because that's synonymous with James Bond. So not that that's a big deal, but when that's on your mind, I feel like you're already making a film with a lot of concessions. <laughs> I'm also glad you brought it. I will say that that dance sequence was one of the most awkward dance sequences I've ever seen in a movie. Like, for it to be portrayed as some kind of, like, you know, oh, my God, lustrious, like, oh, look at them. They can't keep their hands on. Like, I, th I don't know if you're going to. I thought that was one of the most awkward dance sequences I've ever seen. Like, the whole time I'm watching it, I'm just like, this is almost cringeworthy. Like, it's just like, this is so awkward. Like, they seem so fake, almost like mannequins or something like that dancing where, like, it doesn't seem real. Like, if you'd put a, a silhouette, it would have been Kevin McAllister pulling two cardboard cutouts in the window like i just felt it looked so unnatural and weird i feel like that was all of the romance in this movie like even like kind of to talk about another movie we reviewed gothica with halle berry she was coming off swordfish where she showed her boobs for no reason same thing with renee russo i don't understand all of the romance, all of that, it just felt very contrived and very, as we've talked about before, perfume ad. Mm -hmm. I will say, in normal circumstances, I would say there's a lot of movies, like whenever it gets an R rating, I always want to know, like, did it deserve the R or were we pushing this for no reason? You know, whether it's violence or nudity and stuff like that. Well, I, two reasons here. I will actually say, when I first saw renee's breasts i was like okay here it is we just had you had to have the you know generic sex scene where we could show her her breasts so that we could get the r rating but later in the movie when they're in the the south american country and like she's walking around tablas i was like okay i actually i will give the movie credit for this one because at because I guess of how much she walks around topless and all that, and they show it, I'm like, at this point, it does feel like it is an extension of the character. Like, I don't know if you needed to show her breasts, but, like, it was another one of those things where, like, it was less distracting to me by the time, you know, when they were doing it on the beach and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, this to me is, like, it is just her character is just kind of open and free, and that's not a, a big deal to her. And I was like, okay, I, I don't find this as egregious with how they chose to 
to use her nudity. I, just because she does it a lot in the movie I, <laughs> doesn't mean it informs her character. But I, I, I would just say from a cynical box office standpoint, you could remove that and have it be PG-13. And what's the problem? Oh, I agree with that, too. Yeah, it's, I don't think it was necessarily needed. I just felt it wasn't as – it didn't feel as just much just throwing it in there for the sake of having tits out. Yeah, I mean, no pun intended. It, it wasn't meant to be titillating. <laughs> but beyond that, yeah, I just think that the their their romance felt so superficial. And then again, at, at the end of the, the whole movie as a whole, we're like – She's crying over him because she feels like, oh, she gave herself up to him and he, he, you know, he actually played her. I'm like, I hated that. I thought like they were trying to portray her as such a strong character that for at the end for her to be crying on the airplane, I, I felt was a was disingenuous. And it really kind of it knocked her character down um, a couple notches from from what I think they were trying to do with her just being kind of, you know, this in, independent. I, I guess I don't know what the opposite of a femme fatale is because she was you know, the, the, I guess, protagonist or the good guy in this movie. I don't know what you want to say, but yeah, at the end of the day, I just, their, their relationship is built completely off of lust with this weird facade that, lust you know, and deception. Yes. And well, and that was my, my thing. It's like, you want to trust each other, but even at the end of the movie, there really isn't any trust. And I'm like, when that, like, and I know I hate to do this in movies, but I always like to think of like, okay, what happened after the movie ends? And I'm like, where does that relationship go if it was all based off of the cat and mouse game of like oh you're tr you know i did something wrong but you're trying to catch me and i'm trying to get away with it i'm like that's not going to be a healthy relationship going forward like it makes no sense that that would be anything more than a fling yeah i i very rarely think about what's next for the characters in this kind of movie but yeah i was like they're going to be in some sort of argument on a beautiful beachside resort within two weeks of the ending of this movie. Absolutely. With that said, I think there's another character I would love to dive into. Cause I, I mean, I, we could probably go even further into the ridiculousness of the relationship, but I, I think we've, we've touched on it enough. I would love to do Leary of Leary. Cause I don't know exactly what you want to talk about with this, but I do want to talk about his character. Cause as far as I'm concerned, his character kind of saves the day in this movie for me. I think we'll, we'll be pretty close to in unison on that. I think Dennis Leary, like a lot of comedians, you have to be very careful how you use them. Uh, because oftentimes they could just be, hey, I'm going to do two minutes of my stand-up act like four or five times throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. He kind of does that to an extent, but I think the reason he works so much in this movie is he feels like such an everyman and the opposite of pretentious. And I don't even know if the movie wants to do this, but I like him a lot more than Thomas Crown. I agree, and I will say I don't know if that is a preconceived notion of my own or just like my own bias. Like I do not like movies or anything where I'm following a rich smug asshole around it's a reason why it took me several episodes to actually start enjoying you know uh shit's creek because it basically the the show starts off with rich people who lost everything i'm like i don't care i don't care about rich people so i agree a hundred percent i'm like it's very hard for me to like 
either of the main characters in this movie because they just feel even with the the throwaway line from Thomas Crown about where he came up with a boxing scholarship, blah, 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 because, you know, he could fight and, you know, the rich kids couldn't. But like, you're still rich now, which means you're you're a rich asshole who uses your money to get whatever you want. Um, like, with, with the custom classic Mustang that's been welded together so that it can go off-roading. I'm like, I just... Everything about Thomas Crown is like, I don't give a shit about this character. But but Dennis Leary, uh, Detective... Mc, was it McCain? McCann? I think McCann. Yeah, McCann. Uh, Detective McCann. I was actually like, I want to. I wish we followed more of him around. Yeah, hundred percent agreed. Um, and I mean, I, do, are you familiar with Dennis Leary at all? Any of his works? Because I, I was looking him up, and I kind of forgot how many movies I enjoyed him in. Yeah, like Operation Dumbo Drop. Uh, literally, I have that written down. I'm I, <laughs> not ironically. Yeah, I know. Um, he started really in the '90s. I feel like that's when he started his his movie acting career and was in a lot of stuff. Yeah, can I just? I'm just going to read a few, and then we can talk about him more in this movie because I'd like to. But mm-hmm. uh, the first movie I saw him in, Loaded Weapon One, which was a National Lampoon's ripoff of Lethal Weapon. Uh, then you go The Sandlot. As the stepdad, loved him. Uh, Demolition Man, as the leader of like an underground resistance. Uh, Judgment Night. The Ref, as you mentioned, Operation Dumbo Drop. Small Soldiers, A Bug's Life. Uh, I don't know if you watched the show Rescue Me. I was a big fan of that. He was the lead in that. And then I think the last role I really enjoyed him in was... uh, as Gwen Stacy's dad in the Amazing Spider-Man films. Mm-hmm. I think he was one of the highlights of that. Yeah, I was going to say, he might have been the highlight of that movie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, just him contrasted against Thomas Crown, because you mentioned the whole, you know, he's got a boxing scholarship, but that's never really shown. That's just a throwaway line. And as we always say, show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. I don't care about that throwaway line. I don't believe that Thomas Crown is a boxer. Uh, but yeah, it's weird to watch this movie called the Thomas Crown affair. And I actively dislike Thomas Crown and enjoy the detective played by Dennis Leary more, uh, McCann. Mm-hmm. And the, they, they start him off at the beginning as he almost comes off as like a creep or like, he seems like he's going to try and get with Catherine and all that. And like, by the end of the movie, like he almost starts to come off as like a little protective. Like you realize what you're doing right here. Like you're, you're, you're there's a thin line here and you're starting to go on the wrong side of it. I did not understand why Catherine was involved with the police as much as she was, or why she was allowed to interrogate one of their suspects. Um, I thought that whole thing made no sense for her as a, an art bounty hunter. (laughs) Like I don't again, why she was so involved with the case, but what I I was talking about, the, the, the line at the end where basically, you know, Catherine's decided that she does love Thomas. He was telling the truth. She can trust him. She's, she's going to run. He returned the painting. She's going to run back to him. And, uh, and Dennis Leary stops her and is basically like, I know what you're doing. I know that you're like, you're involved with all this. I don't care. And she's like, you're just going to let me go. You're not going to pursue him. And his whole thing about like, 
I don't give a shit about brush strokes. Like this is art. It means nothing to me. Like I saved like a kid's life in and stopped two like abuse cases the week before this. That actually matters. This means nothing. Like, no, literally you can run. I don't care if you have the, the artwork. Like to me, that saved the entire movie because at the end of the day, it's like, okay, I guess now is where they've decided to be a little self-aware. We're like, all of this is just goofy, stupid bullshit. It means like this movie should mean nothing to you at the end of it, you know? No, I agree, and that's the saving grace of the movie, but like you said, it just feels like a final flourish, like, hey, we've reviewed this film, why would people care about these rich, smug assholes? Let's put this kind of throwaway dialogue, and ultimately, I want a movie that I'll never get, which is, give me Detective McCann's story, and I guess that's why kind of I like Rescue Me, because instead of a cop, he's a fireman, but you get to live in that more everyman life that Dennis Leary portrays here. But it's a backhanded compliment to this mm. movie to me. I do wish because I know Leary had a couple scenes where he was trying to talk to Catherine. I do wish they had sprinkled more of that in about why he was like just didn't care. He just wanted the case to be over, like how this meant nothing to him whatsoever, because I think it would have been that line at the end would have been more impactful because again that would like i said that was the saving grace for me like the end of this movie where i'm just like okay this whole movie is ridiculous and stupid and then for them to throw that in at the very end i'm like okay at least i can walk away knowing that they know that this movie is ridiculous and stupid and like this is not some none of this is stuff that you should care about right and i mean even when at a certain point when Catherine's upset about something to do with thomas crown i think that's when uh the stupid subplot of like, oh, this young blonde that is clearly portrayed to be sleeping. I mean, that's not the case. Uh, but McCann kind of tries to talk to her and ask her, you know, if she's upset and she's like, she's okay. And then he kind of comes back with, you know, I was okay once my girlfriend went out one night and came back married. I told everyone that I didn't care. And then I fucked five women in three days, flipped my car on an on-ramp be the suspect unconscious got suspended but i was okay i wanted more of that movie mm -hmm. but it just feels like two scenes were inserted in the middle because yeah we can't keep focusing on thomas crown flying planes around and you know boating and just being rich <laughs> yeah so oh, yeah it, it's I did leery of leery as kind of a tease because I was leery to see, oh, here's a comedian in this movie. But I was stunned that he was my favorite part. Oh, I thought it was leery for leery because the way his character is portrayed at the beginning makes him seem like he's kind of going to be a, a slimeball moron. And by the end of the movie, you realize like, oh, no, he's he's actually the hero. He's the hero we need, not the hero we deserve. <laughs> so, um, but when, yeah, it works both ways. With that said, we have another one, another top five that you put in here. A certain musk. Please, please enlighten me as to what a certain musk is. I mean, do you have any predictions? Um, no, I don't. I don't. It, it maybe it has something to do with Elon Musk. Are we making a comparison yes, to him? Oh, precisely. okay. <laughs> Fantastic. And I, I it, it's in lockstep with what we've already talked about. I hate Thomas Crown and I hate Elon Musk. I, I feel like they're the same kind of person. Like, I don't I don't know why we're supposed to root for Thomas Crown in any way in this movie, because I feel like if this were made in 2021, 
instead of stealing our Thomas Crown would be trying to go to Mars. Yeah. To He's stroke to his own Steal evening. a planet. <laughs> yeah, I just I don't have much to say, but I feel like again, this movie was made in ninety nine. If it was in twenty twenty one, these characters would be Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and whatever insurance fraud agent is investigating them. And would anyone want to watch that movie? I certainly wouldn't. Well, so and I, I that, think that was really all I had to say about that. What, what about you? Yeah. And I, I think it goes back to, it's almost like an example of when you have a classic hero actor or somebody who's been cast as the, you know, typecast as kind of a hero, like a J he's James Bond. That's who Pierce Brosnan is at that time. It's hard for them to be a villain. And it's almost like in the, what is it? Fate of the Furious when Vin Diesel's, um, you know, Dom Toretto has to become the villain of the movie. And it's like, it's so far-fetched and makes no sense. Like, in order for them to make them, you can't make them a full-fledged villain because they still have to be the likable person. So it winds up being this weird bastardization of what a villain is. Like, it's not even a tragic villain or a sympathetic villain. It's just one of these, like, oh, we put a hero and we made him do a bad thing. And now, or he, now he's a bad guy. And it's like, he's not, though. He's just an asshole. He's just a bored, rich asshole is, is who Thomas Crown is. So it's like, it's hard for you. I think they needed to dive way more into the boxing thing of him growing up poor so that you could actually make him like, okay, there's something likable or that, you know, he, he is part of the every man. He's just, he's fought so hard to, to achieve what he's got. But the beginning of the movie basically sets him off as some kind of prodigy that never loses anything. And I'm like, well, if he never loses, I want to watch him lose. Like, that's what the point of this movie is now is I want to watch the man who never loses, get his ass handed to him. And that doesn't happen. And that's what should have happened. Catherine should have bested him at the end of the movie. And that's that to me would have made it a much more gratifying movie. Instead, it is the quote unquote villain of the movie still winds up winning. But the hero fell. I guess you could say hero fell in love with him. And I, I guess, again, that goes back to Dennis Leary's character, Detective McCann. Why you wind up liking him the most is he feels like the one who actually earned something or is actually actually doing something in the movie. Everyone else is just kind of you know, fucking their way through a plot. So. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of shocked that you're calling Thomas crown, the villain, like through a realistic lens, I think he's a villain, but through this movie, he is not portrayed that way at all. I agree. And that's like, the problem. It's like, he's supposed to well, be there's the no antagonist. Villain. Yeah, there isn't. That's the problem with this mm -hmm. movie. He, he's a good guy who does bad things. I don't, I don't even know if he's a good guy because it's not even like, oh, he's a rich guy who gives to charity. Like he's just, and I guess that's the thing is like, it's hard for you to project yourself onto him for him to be, he's not an avatar. You know, he doesn't do anything redeeming at the end of the movie and it winds up just being like, you know, I, I don't I'm even trying to think of like another movie around that time, like six days, seven nights, but at least there's some chemistry where like those characters disliked, like these characters almost immediately love each other. And then it's just a matter of like, Hey, you know, one of us is supposed to be like, I need you to return the yard. Like, it's just, again, it, it's such a weird dynamic. Like I just, and I just don't think it works. Yeah, not at all. There's, there's no dramatic thrust to the movie because like you said, they fall in love pretty much immediately. And, it kind of never makes sense for Catherine's character to 
continue to pursue him because it's clear that they are in love, like just in the movie. Like, why are we even going through these pretensions? Because there's not even really a crime. He ultimately returns the painting even before we think that he does. I well, and beyond I that, can't get over how inert this movie is. Yeah, there's no tension too because it's like the whole time it's like, oh my god, like Thomas, like we can just run away together, but how are we going to do that? I have the means. I'm like. You, no one has any evidence that you've done anything wrong. Like, as of right now, the only person actually investigating you is the person who you're supposed to run away with. If she decides not to investigate anymore and you just live off of your wealth, nothing happens. Like, they, there's no threat of another bounty hunter coming to find the painting. It's just the painting's gone. So, like, the entire movie when they're talking about, like, there's no tension in that. Like, oh, you know, if if I can return the painting, we can be together forever. I'm like, you don't have to return the painting. Literally, the painting means nothing. At this point, you all are just deciding if you want to see if this will go somewhere. You know? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, when we speak about it and we put it plainly, nothing happens in this movie. It's just a rich guy who gets a new girlfriend through... <laughs> the most ridiculous, amazing first series of dates. Yes. That's all it is. It, that's why this movie had rom-com beats, but they tried to make it an action film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, I mean, I think leads perfectly into Die Hard Another Day. Let's hear it. Die Hard Another Day. Uh, I was... I picked this movie, which put it on me. It's my fault, but... I didn't realize when I picked it that this this is John McTiernan. Are you familiar with his work, Brett? Uh, not by the director's name, no. But I'm sure I've seen. Are you seen... serious? You know I'm not the names guy. You know I'm not the he names directed... guy. He directed Brett. Okay, so he did Die Hard, Predator, Predator. Oh, okay, yeah, the Hunt Classic. for Red October, <laughs> Rollerball remake, Die Hard with Last Action Hero. Okay, so yes, he is. Yeah. Does this feel in any way related to those movies? No, it is definitely like I he has 12 movies for directing credit and it is by far the like the weird one out of the bunch. It's Nomads, Predator, Die Hard, The Hunt for the Red October, Medicine Man, Last Action Hero, Die Hard with a Vengeance, The Thomas Crown Affair, 13 Warrior the 13th warrior rollerball basic in something else that's in pre-production. So yeah, this is, I don't, how did he get brought on to this movie? I looked into it and it seems like he was unavailable initially. And there was a search for a director. And then eventually it took so long that McTiernan became available uh, they brought McTiernan in, and then, as we discuss off-podcast, the original Thomas Crown Affair had nothing to do with art. It was a like a bank robbery movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So it feels like they brought him in for that, but then McTiernan was like, I don't think audiences would be sympathetic with a rich guy staging an armed robbery where people were in danger. Mm-hmm. So they changed it to this kind of elaborate heist with no guns or violence. In which case, why have John McTiernan direct the movie? Like when his best movies are Die Hard and Predator, which count the amount of gunfire in those movies. 
why is he doing this? It, it completely goes opposite of what he's good at. So I don't know why he was brought on and why he was a desired director for it. I I, I agree 100%. Um, I even, I'm, I mean, I'm looking at the box art right now, like the poster for the Thomas Crown Affair, and it doesn't even look like an action movie. Like, it looks like a suspense movie. And with the name Thomas Crown Affair, like, I would not have imagined this was about an art thief. Yeah, and McTiernan made several changes to the script, which kind of go along with what we're saying. Like, it's going to be hard for the audience to relate to a super rich guy who wants to do this shit. But he ends up neutering the only part of the movie that would be interesting, which is if Thomas Crown was willing to have people get hurt in this endeavor. Because as it stands, the the most damage done to anybody is Rene Russo as, as Catherine crying on a plane, which immediately is resolved by Thomas Crown being like, it's OK, baby, we're going to the Cayman Islands. You forget when he uh, trips so- the Ukrainian. All right. That guy... <laughs> Like, it could have hurt his knees. You're right. That was, that was probably at least in New York. <laughs> but I'm just like, I'm thinking about Die Hard compared to this movie. Maybe this could have been a good film, but it needed to be much more of the erotic thriller and needed the hand of a director who could do that. Because, I mean, for Christ's sake, you've got... It's Die Hard Another Day. You've got James Bond and one of the greatest action directors of all time, and you made a completely boring film. Yeah, because, I mean, as outside of the the initial heist, which we'll get into in a second, which is completely over the top, and I guess the final heist, there really isn't any action in this movie outside of that. It basically bookends the movie with the with the two action heists, and everything in the middle is basically just kind of weird fluff that means nothing. Yeah, I definitely felt McTiernan's hand in that first heist scene, and I was hopeful for the movie, but it felt like that was the one flourish that he put on the movie, and the rest was just shoot the script that was presented. Well, and it's weird too why you opened with that. If that was, if you're only going to have two action sequences in the entire movie, why wouldn't you use the beginning of the movie to establish Thomas Crown and Catherine individually as, as characters? Then you have the heist go off, and then when they start to meet and they do the cat and mouse, we have a little bit more understanding of both of those characters, and maybe we're invested in at least one of them. Instead, it's like it just immediately takes you into that heist and then immediately out of any any real action for the rest of the movie. Yeah, no, 100% agree. Does that lead into Art of the Steel for you? Yeah, so Art of the Steel, I just wanted to talk about the two heists because the one at the beginning is so incredibly convoluted and over the top, especially if you start to figure out how exactly it was done. Because I'm like, the whole time it's happening, I'm like, okay, the Trojan horse thing was funny because I was like, oh, it's a sarcophagus, it's a horse. Wouldn't it be funny if, like, guys are inside? And then they start to saw their way out. I'm like, oh, okay, there are guys inside of it. And then it's like, they had to take down the security, they have to overheat the rooms and this, that, and the other. And they're all doing it in broad daylight and a giant helicopter's coming over. And I'm like, at a certain point, I'm like, why are they doing all of this during the day? And that's what I, I couldn't figure out for the life of me. I'm like, I don't understand why they're trying to steal it in broad daylight. And then I guess the justification is supposed to be so that Thomas himself can be the one who walks it out the door. 
And I'm like, even to me, I'm like, that doesn't make really any sense whatsoever why he would. I know that, you know, it's supposed to be like, oh, he's got everything. He's bored. So maybe he has to do the crime himself. But I'm like, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me how convoluted. And then again, it comes up to he winds up being the eyewitness who testifies or, you know, does a lineup and, and calls one of them out. And I'm like, either he should have tried to misdirect them or I'm like, I was waiting for that to be another action sequence later in the movie. It's like, okay, you know, they're going to find out he set them up and now they're coming after him and he has to pay his way out of it or something like that. But like, it's no, that doesn't, aside from that being the way Catherine sees him in the, the police department, that's it. That's the only reason to have that happen is so that she can see him for the first time. And for some reason, be sus suspicious that he's the one involved, you know? Yeah, I mean, he's setting up all these people to go to prison. And then that kind of just ends like he, he hires this team that all get caught because he wanted them to get caught. And then there is no dramatic tension resulting from that for the rest of the movie. And that's a, which, that's a critical mistake. Which, again, goes back to why he's just an asshole that no one cares about. I'm like, he literally hired these people to send them to prison. That's what he did. So that he could steal a painting that he was going to ultimately give back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Brett, you said it. That that should be the Rotten Tomatoes review. I don't get this. This movie was it's a remake of a 60s movie. But this was made in 99. How could you not read the optics of how unlikable Thomas Crown would be? <laughs> Like, what, why even remake this movie at that point? Because you already are making concessions about, hey, he might not be likable if there are guns involved. He's just not likable. <laughs> exactly. Just make a different movie. No, you'll love him because he's rich and suave and, you know, no, I don't. He's he's still just an asshole. <laughs> Especially when he's already playing James Bond. If, if we yep. want that escapist fantasy... We'll watch him in Goldeneye. <laughs> yeah. So then I wanted to talk about the end. So not only, not only that, but like the score at the beginning of the movie is batshit crazy. It's all over the place. Honestly, the score in this movie in general is all over the place. But all I can think of when they ended the because I hadn't seen this movie before when they ended the the initial uh, heist. All I could think of was like, man, at any point, I really thought they were going to break into Sinner Man. Like, I just, it sounded like Sinner Man was coming. And then they do the second heist and immediately break into Sinner Man. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. They decided they had to hold that for the second shitty heist <laughs> at the end of the movie. Because I'm like, it just felt so reminiscent of, of that song. So, like, it's interesting with the going back and forth and this and that and all that. But at the end of the day, so... I picked up that it was going to wind up being he had already given back the painting, um... My, my problem with it is, is like they've established that there's art critics that review the paintings and that's how they knew the original one that Catherine uncovered was a fake. So then they decided this other fake was, you know, the the painting that he puts on loan. Apparently no one would inspect that, even though he's giving them a potentially multi-million dollar painting. You're not going to have any insurance company inspect that to make sure that it's real. And then the way that it's revealed is the sprinklers go off. And I'll admit, it is a really fucking cool reveal, right? The sprinklers go off, and basically the water washes away. That I guess it was water paint that they painted over top of a $100 million classic painting. 
it's somehow the sprinklers don't damage that. It only washes away the water paint off of the front of it. And I'm like, this makes no sense. He still would have destroyed that work of art because it's now soaked in water. It's not like they splashed it. It's soaked in water and had and was painted over. And on top of that, somehow he stole another painting and all of that chaos, which they just decide they're not going to tell us how that happened. And I'm like, this is stupid. Like, at the end of that, I was like, this is... I love Center Man, and the, the energy of the last heist, I think, is a lot of fun, but the heist itself is stupid. And beyond uh, yes, that... Yes, agreed. Beyond that... The, the only thing I... Oh, sorry? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, beyond that, the, the best part about the heist is the whole thing is the cops are going to catch him putting the painting back, and I'm like, just cover the exits. Why are you chasing him through? Like, literally, all you have to do is wait in that room... And if he puts the painting back, then catch him there or just cover the exits. Like, I don't understand why they're chasing him through the museum. Brett, the only reason I picked this movie is because we did it art heist as the theme. Next week, Red Notice, by the way. Um, all I remember from this movie is a heist and the song Center Man by Nina Simone. Like, in my head, this movie was that. <laughs> and, yeah, like you said, the end heist is kind of – it's got good vibes. The, the music is perfect. I like the energy. But ultimately, it's in the middle of a movie I hate or at the end of a movie I hate. And the actual heist makes no sense. The relationship between the two leads make no sense. None of it makes sense. And Thomas Crown's unlikable. But yeah, Nina Simone, the song hits. And that's the best compliment I can give to the movie. The, the whole movie culminates into my favorite part of the movie is the last, like that's that solid, what, six to eight minutes where that heist, the result of that heist, and then Dennis Leary's line about how he doesn't give a shit about painting art thieves. Like, in the grand scheme of things, they mean nothing. So like, the whole movie culminates to, I enjoyed about eight minutes of the movie. So that when you talk about, was it fun? I'm like, yeah, there's, but it goes back to YouTube it. <laughs> like you, you can YouTube those two, two scenes and, and you've, you've completed this movie. Yeah. I mean, when you have a character and Dennis Leary saying, essentially, like you said, I don't give a shit about art thieves. That's a problem when it's in the middle of a two-hour movie about an art thief. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that does it for five points, unless you want to go into anything else, or if you have any miscellaneous uh, things, tidbits. Uh, I, I think we can jump into some Chop Shop if you're ready. I'm ready. This week's Chop Shop, I picked horror. I didn't pick it. I got assigned horror, and you got comedy. Who do you want to take it first? Um, I want you to go ahead and get your potential execution out of the way, because I don't see how you can make this a horror, but I'm always amazed by what you do, Brett, so lead it off if you will. All right, so we make no excuses here. Uh, we don't pretend... 
we we come out we'll tell you straight neither of us are huge horror fans right at least uh like the slasher genre or anything like that i think both of us have a special place in our heart for like a like a, a gothic horror like a ghost story um so i'll admit i also think slashers are just kind of lazy let's face it if i just wanted to write a script where everybody dies like i could do that but originally with this one i thought about going down the misery road right where it winds up are you know a, a cruel i intent. was already there I was miserable <laughs> watching this. Our fail attraction. Um, at one point, I was I was kind of trying to see what lies beneath. None of them quite felt right. Um, but again, more like an illustrious, like an affair than than why this is called the Thomas Crown Affair. I I think it's a little a little loose with why we're calling it that. But ultimately, I went back to my my comfort zone and I went more a little bit more gothic horror. And I. Either you're, the audience is going to thank me or think I'm I'm a piece of shit for it. So, as always, my main inspirations for this is Pirates of the Caribbean, a little bit of City of Angels, and, and maybe some touches of Catch Me If You Can. All right, maybe very very sparse, very, just a little sprinkling, a little dash of it. And you'll see. I don't know if I really embodied Catch Me If You Can, but it's something that I wish had been a little bit more maybe in this movie. And we'll go ahead and start it off here. So the movie starts with Claude Monet in exile. We're back in this is eighteen, uh, like eighteen seventy. Holy shit! We're, we're going back to like the the eighteen. I think it's eighteen like sixty eighteen sixty nine. All right. The movie starts with Claude Monet in exile, avoiding conscription, which is a basically a draft at the time. This is historically accurate, by the way. Him uh, being a draft dodger. Um. While he's in exile, he's pleading with God to spare him from having to go to war, right? So shortly after he pleads, a mysterious figure arrives at his home where he's hiding out. And this man offers him a deal. And the deal is that he will guarantee that Monet will not be drafted. He can avoid the draft, will not go to war. But Monet must do something for him. Monet's listening. He says, Monet, you will avoid the war as long as you, but as long as you are in exile... You must put your heart and soul into everything you paint. And Monet agrees with no hesitation. Obviously, he's a painter. Why wouldn't he? You know, he puts his heart and soul into everything he does. It's his craft. So Monet, Monet agrees without hesitation. Hard cut to New York City, 1999. Thomas Crown is a wealthy businessman and an avid art collector, having one of the largest collections of Monet paintings in the world. He frequents museums and is known as an expert in the Impressionist movement. Right? While admiring a series of paintings in a nearby museum, the security guard catches him admiring a particular painting of Monet's. The guard makes pleasantries, makes an offhand comment about the painting Thomas is studying and that it is actually one of two remaining paintings from Monet's time in exile. So Monet painted three. I looked this up again, historically accurate. He had three paintings around the time of his exile. From about uh, 69 to, I think, 71, somewhere around there. So the third having disappeared years ago, Thomas quips that he knows and that he actually already owns the other painting and it's hanging in his home. So he owns two of the, one of the two remaining paintings. Thomas leaves the museum and the movie plays out very similar to the current. Thomas is seen as a keen businessman. As a group, as a group celebrate one of his, his acquisitions or sells, one of his colleague jokes, you know, asks if Thomas has ever made a deal that taunted him, at which point Thomas replies, only one. 
The movie cuts back to the grand heist with Tom successfully stealing the last exiled uh, uh, Monet painting. Again, very much like the movie already plays out. We we enjoyed the heist scene, so why why cut it out? Catherine arrives as a bounty hunter from the for the insurance company. She interrupts Detective McCann as he tries to piece together what happened. After Catherine points out a few key slash hard to see clues, uh, McCann asks her about her background and she explains who she is. So McCann asks if it's a lucrative business. At which point, Catherine you know smirks, slightly hesitates to answer, and applies when you catch them, yes. Much of the movie will play out similar to how it currently did, with Catherine accusing Thomas of stealing the painting, the two becoming embroiled in a game of cat and mouse. Catherine will steal back the fake Monet. When they do the x-ray, they don't find an image of the dogs playing poker, though. Instead, it's a portrait of Monet. But the man, the portrait seems to be, Monet seems to be worn, almost tired, perhaps haunted by the death of his wife, his first wife. And, you know, again, just he looks almost worn down the two uh re-engage in the dance they make love and thomas will offer to take her to france instead of to south america thomas and catherine fly to an oceanside french home catherine notices a small crate the size of a painting that she's been hunting much like the movie thomas continues to bait her about the painting but she continues to act like she doesn't care while exploring the home, Catherine starts to notice a lot of old pictures around the home. Many of them are the same woman, and a few have Monet in them. Catherine notices an uncanny resemblance that, uh, that Thomas seems to have with Monet. At dinner that night, Catherine asks Thomas about his obsession with the Monet is, and Thomas reveals that he's actually a descendant of the painter. There, Thomas and Catherine continue with their game of cat and mouse, as seen in the movie. Catherine opens up about why this case is so important to her, and that why she won't let him win... She describes that she has a one that got away with the other Monet. So she's been hunting the other one that disappeared <laughs> years ago, uh, and she was never able to recover it. When Catherine returns to New York, McCann informs her that the art critic that, uh, that dubbed the recovered Monet as a fake has something for them. When they visit him, he tells them that the examined the unidentified Monet um, was a portrait underneath, um, stating that he didn't think the portrait um, was actually an undiscovered Monet, but the greatest fake that he's ever seen. When pressed for more information, he states that the techniques are flawless. He would have bet his life that it was done by the French master himself, but the paint used was of a modern compound and could not have been used at the time that it would have needed to be painted during Monet's life. Catherine begins to question Thomas's connection to Monet and decides to confront him. She arrives at his house at night, of course, and lets herself in. As she creeps through the halls and the corridors of the home, she finally finds Thomas in a backroom painting. She accuses him of not only being a thief, but also a forger. As she ber uh, berates him for his dishonesty, she notices all three of the or Monets from exile are hanging on the wall behind him. In horror, she realizes that she's been chasing him for years, but didn't know it. Thomas then begins to explain that he's not a fraud, that he is in fact Monet. As crazy as it may sound, he describes the deal he unknowingly made with a demon to save him from the war. For the longest time, he couldn't figure out why he couldn't die, why he stopped aging, and why he was made to suffer for all the, um, as all those he loved around him died. It wasn't until recently that he realized the deal that he had made, that these three paintings housed parts of his souls and prevented him from moving on, and that he must destroy them if he's ever to find peace in this world. 
He continues to explain his plan and how it all changed when he met her, and the more that they interacted, the more he realized he wasn't quite done with this world. He offers to return the, the most recent stolen Monet so that they can live their lives together. Catherine leaves angry and in denial. The movie ends very similarly with Cinnerman, uh, with the Cinnerman scheme, with Catherine experiencing flashbacks of the pictures in France and other comments Thomas had made throughout the movie. She believes him and decides to run off with him, much like how the movie plays off, with the exception that Thomas does not stand her up at the helicopter pad. So, uh... You know, that's ultimately how I, I changed this into more of a, a gothic horror story. And obviously, the way the movie we shot be a little different. You'd have to use, uh, you know, more dramatic lighting. I think it'd be a little bit darker. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I transformed this into a a ghost story horror movie. Uh, well done. I, I'll be honest, I didn't want to interrupt because... I thought for a second that you were going to have Thomas Crown be the demon slash Satan that visited Monet and offered him that deal. Mm -hmm. And it would be kind of like a needful things vibe, but I liked where you went, where he was literally Monet. I, and that mm -hmm. was a brilliant touch. Yeah. That's where I kind of pulled it. And I, cause I think city of angels has a super shitty ending too, but I thought, you know, the city, of the angels kind of inspiration there was that he decides not like, He's going to he's going to stick around a little bit more. So he knows where the three exile paintings are now and he can get them again. He's he's solved the mystery. So he's OK with giving the one back. And then ultimately he'll try and, you know, maybe steal it again when he's ready to to pass on. But uh, yeah, I thought yeah, I, almost I, like I just, a little uh, professional Leon vibe. You know, he got a taste for life now. Mm -hmm. it, it deviated from his mission. So I, I love that. I can't believe you pulled off horror with this. Uh, so yeah, now I would love to hear how you turn this movie into more of a comedy. <laughs> um, I'll just go ahead and say mine's not as uh, thought out and detailed as yours, but in uh, my normal fashion, this is going to be more of a sequel. Uh, so we're going to pick up 14 months after the events of the Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, we'll find uh, Banning and Crown... Uh, they're living in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, McCann <laughs> has resigned from the NYPD and is now a fledgling private detective. Uh, he uses his limited resource to track the two, and the movie opens with him arriving at Atlanta. Uh, we're going to cut to Catherine and Thomas having dinner in their palatial estates. Classical music is playing over you know, their romantic dinner, the, the cheesy romantic kind of dinner. And they're going to hear a loud bang outside, and uh, shortly after, they'll hear their doorbell ring. It's McCann, who immediately flashes an FBI badge. Now, Crown and Banning, the nature of their work, they'll immediately notice that it's a fraudulent badge. He doesn't really work for the FBI. And they're also going to point out that the, uh, the beat-up Crown Vic he just pulled in in just had a backfire, which was what we heard uh, as he pulled up, uh, McCann's going to kind of feel a certain way about the events of uh, the movie. I know he doesn't give a shit about art, but he's kind of got a, a grudge against these two. Uh, we spoke again about him being the everyman against, you know, these rich, uh, you know, Elon Musk types. Uh, so McCann basically is like, hey, I know you're here to rob something. 
you need to let me in on this scheme because uh, he needs the money. So he's correctly deduced that the uh, the thievery will be at the High Museum of Art, which is actually a museum in Atlanta. Uh, and McCann kind of tells him, hey, I've got connections with Atlanta PD. I could be a valuable asset. Uh, Crown agrees to let McCann in on the heist, but warns him this is uh, his last job and they're going to retire to Indonesia. Uh, and the painting they're going to steal is, is Indonesian art. Uh, so Crown's idea is, hey, I'm going to retire to Indonesia and I'm going to do a good thing for the Indonesian people and I'm going to bring this painting back to them. Okay. Uh, so McCann returns the following weekend, and uh, basically we're going to set up the crew. Crown, as he did in this movie that we reviewed, he's he's hired a bunch of fall guys so they can go to prison and he can execute his real plan to steal the Indonesian art. Uh, the fall guys this time around are going to be a trio of rednecks, and I, I forgot to mention – the influences on this movie are just two comedies, Logan Lucky, and There's Something About Mary. Okay. So uh, McCann's private detective, you know, think about that part. But uh, So the, the, the Fall Guys this time around are a trio of rednecks from Backwoods, Georgia. Three siblings named Ronnie, Johnny, and their sister Lonnie. Uh, the trio show up at the Crown Estate in a lifted 90s era pickup. Uh, so, again, since this is a comedy, I just want to contrast the rednecks against Thomas Crown's, you know, buttoned up demeanor. Um, so Ronnie, Johnny and Lonnie, last name Puckett. Uh, they're going to kind of have a job interview of sorts with uh, Thomas Crown. They're going to go over their kind of specialties, what they bring to the heist. So we would have the classic comedy scene here where we'll cut to Ronnie talking about what he does well. And then we'll intersperse that with scenes of Ronnie racing dirt track cars, wrecking anyone in his way, and ultimately getting the checkered flag and winning. And then we'll cut to Johnny talking about his uh, specialties. And that'll be intercut with him at a rock quarry, blowing up a huge hole in like a rock wall. And then we're going to cut to Lonnie, the sister. She's playing Candy Crush. <laughs> and we're going to cut to Crown... And he's kind of think... looking confused. And uh, Lonnie responds, I'm real good with computers, you know, security and such. Uh, Crown continues to look skeptical, but knows he needs all the puckets to do is uh, put on a good show so that he can execute his real plan. Uh, so Crown and Catherine tell McCann to work with Lonnie and his local PD contacts about security at the museum. And they're going to go off with the other two brothers to, uh, you know, acquire supplies for the heist. Uh, so we'll have a scene of Lonnie on her laptop at the Crown Estate. It's just her and McCann. And McCann's going to be standing outside on the patio talking on his cell phone. We'll intersperse that with Lonnie playing Candy Crush. And you'll be concerned, you know, why the hell is she the computer expert? Uh, Crown and Catherine are in the car following Ronnie and Johnny to the rock quarry. Uh, to look at the explosives, and uh, Catherine expresses doubt about the Puckett's ability to blow something up without hurting anyone. Uh, Crown assures Catherine he's figured it all out. Uh, so this is going to lead into the last heist, and this is where I'll need your help, Brad, because, again, this is a comedy. 
so we could have a comedy of errors. But where I ultimately want this to end is the puckets are not as dumb as they seem. And uh, Lonnie and McCann have been working together the whole time. And uh, Lonnie actually is great with computers. And while she was alone with McCann at the Thomas Crown estate, she was basically, you know, computer mumbo-jumbo, setting up a way to drain all of the funds from Thomas Crown's bank account. And the movie's going to end with Thomas Crown getting his Indonesian painting, but then realizing that he's broke. And the Puckets have run off to Indonesia, which is a non-extradition country. I looked that up. And they're going to spend Thomas Crown's millions helping the Indonesian people. And they basically sent him a postcard from Indonesia taunting him, saying that uh, his money is going to help the people of Indonesia much more than a painting would. And uh, he's free to sell that painting if he wants to uh, have a little money again. And I assume the the postcard that he ha he gets has to be a postcard of that Indonesian painting. You guessed it, Brett. You guessed it. <laughs> so I I love that we kind of ultimately had the same idea that Thomas Crown is a non likable son of a bitch, and uh, I wanted a a little comedy with Edge to basically put him in his place, which is what I was going for. And McCann kind of showing up as this, you know, oh, I'm I'm running a fledgling PI operation. It was all an elaborate setup so that he could get the upper hand on Thomas Crown. I like it. When <laughs> when you started, I thought you were going to go with a just married vibe where it was going to be like 14 months or whatever into the future. And it's just like they absolutely can't stand each other. <laughs> it was just <laughs> going to be them like actually trying to get rid of one another. But they, for whatever reason, couldn't. Uh, I like the direction you went better, though, where it's especially because it, it makes it look like he's not a, good as at crime art crime as he thinks he is you know so yeah. well you know what i think is interesting is he ultimately gets away with the art crime but uh a bigger crime was committed against him and again i i think my problem with thomas crown was if you're rich and bored help people mm -hmm. and uh you know these these rednecks from georgia the puckett family they're the ones that actually go and, and and help people with Thomas Crown's money. So, so I am interested. The only person in this that doesn't seem what happens to uh, to Catherine. You know, I thought about that. I think she has to kind of go down with the ship with Thomas Crown. Yeah, because while she's not as bad as Thomas Crown, the fact that she's intrigued by that life and enjoys it, and she's complacent and is willing to kind of be a co-conspirator with yeah. him. To me, she can she can live the same fate as Thomas Crown. Fair enough, I like it. Uh, so yeah, we can uh, we can move on to the next segment. Uh, okay, let's go ahead and jump into some Blue Book then, if you're down. Alrighty, sir. The market value, the budget for the 1999 Thomas Crown affair was 48 million dollars. Do you want to go ahead and guess how much this movie brought in gross U.S. and Canada? Uh, I gotta, I gotta 
pace myself here because I, I tend to jump into what my worldwide guess is. Domestically, I'm going to say 79. What'd you say? Uh, 79 million. 79? 79? Okay. You were off by about 10 mil. Came in at 69 million. That was 1999 money. What do you think it brought in worldwide? Uh, I'm going to say 92 million. The world loved this movie, Travis. $124 million. I, uh, yeah, this doesn't feel like a particularly international movie, so I'm surprised by that. Yep. Don't know. I don't I'm know sure if the was, remake status helped. I, I don't know if it's Pierce Brosnan. I don't know if it did well in like England or something like that. But yeah, 124 million. I don't know. Also, if, if nothing else good came out around this, and it's like this is all people had to watch was the Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, I'd have to look into it because 99 was a hell of a year for movies. It, it really as we've was. we discussed previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be hard. Even if you came out in a bad week, you'd still have movies that came out previous weeks that should have should have beat this so but yeah or maybe it was just that it was in a year where there were so many good movies people were just going to the theater a lot thinking you know roll the dice i'm bound to hit something great yeah and i mean again i had fond memories of this movie from 99 and obviously i was wrong but hey maybe we all got caught in that uh, vortex also too movies have evolved i mean that movie was 22 years ago so maybe it is in 99 terms maybe that was a fantastic there's still better movies that came out in I, I can't even justify that so yeah you can't play devil's advocate there yeah all right let's jump into some tag and title all righty here we go i i cheated again this week travis but i think it's okay, because one of them is a dead giveaway, all right? But I came up with it, so I had to throw it in there. So this week, you're going to have classic rules. I'm going to give you three taglines. One is the actual tagline for the movie. One is a tagline for a movie I found adjacent. One is a tagline I made for the movie, and one is a ridiculous tagline. So this is the fourth one. It's a ridiculous one that you know absolutely is not going to be it, So, but I threw it in there anyway. So... Are you ready to play tag a title? Let's do it. All right, here you go. All art is dangerous. When you raise the stakes, you heighten the attraction. Art won't be the only thing he steals. And show me the Monet. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to say show me the Monet is the one you made up. Yeah, that's the ridiculous one that I do. Like, it's not even fair. Like, <laughs> But I thought it was so fun that I, I couldn't help but throw it in there. <laughs> so, uh, best so, part about this movie is so fun, Brett. <laughs> so I'll give you the real tag and title so that we've gotten that one out of the way. I'll, I'll reread them for you. All art is dangerous. When you raise the stakes, you heighten the attraction. And art won't be the only thing he steals. Those are your three taglines. Please tell me what is an original tagline for the 1999 Thomas Crown Affair. 
I'm going to say Art is not the only thing he steals. Okay. So, do you have any guesses for the other two? Uh, give, give me the one about Art being dangerous or something. All Art is Dangerous. I think that's going to be an adjacent film. Okay. Uh, which leaves the last to be, I guess, one made up by you that's not quite so ridiculous. When you raise the stakes, you heighten the attraction. You're saying it's the one I made up? Uh, no, you wouldn't have made that up. Let's Let's reverse that. I think that's going to be the one for the original Thomas Crown Affair. When you raise the stakes, you heighten the attraction... Is the or is the 1999 uh, tagline? Oh, God damn it! All art is dangerous. Is Velvet Buzzsaw? Because I was trying to find other movies about art. Not easy. <laughs> and art won't be the only thing he steals. Was mine. So yeah, this I mean, movie, again, had, I think yours hmm? is the best. Uh yeah. I I'll give you the other two. Um. So this movie did have three taglines. The other one was, how do you get the man who has everything? And crime does pay handsomely. Still, I actually like the, how do you get the man that has everything? That's a good little play on the popular saying. They should have gone with that as the mm -hmm. primary. Was that not the primary? Uh, I don't It doesn't tell me what the primary is. I just grab, I just look at all three of them, and then I just pick one of them. So... Uh, let's see if I can find a poster. Do you agree? I think that's a good tagline for a poster. Yeah, I think that, that that was the primary, was how do you get the man who has everything? Yeah, for once, I'm not disappointed by the official tagline. Yep. So there you have it. That brings us into our second-to-last segment, Time Capsule. Are you ready, sir? Uh, yeah, I mean, Time Capsule... For anybody new to the podcast, it's just kind of taking an element from the movie and kind of discussing where that element was at any other point kind of in, in, in movie history. Uh, in this particular case, I went with Bill Conti, who is the composer of the score of this movie. A pretty prolific composer. I think the most famous work that he's done is he scored all of the Rocky films. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I did not. Um, very iconic score. Uh, Gotta Fly Now. If you don't know it by name, you would hear it by ear. But I, my only comment was Bill Conti feels like a very kind of old school composer, uh, which would make sense because this is a remake of a movie from 1968. I, I did feel like he he brought a timeless quality to it, even though I don't think the score of this movie is particularly uh, memorable. So I think you had a little bit more about the score, though. So I'm going to leave it up to you. So I'm going to give you a hot take from me. Uh, classic as he may be, I thought that this score was dog shit. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought this score was all over the place. Um, I would love to hear the overture for this because I like to me, none of it blended together. Like, I honestly think the majority of my notes for this movie are essentially about how weird the score is. Like it goes from like 
weird jazz to like some bluesy stuff. I, I'd have to actually look at my my actual notes, but I'm like, I just remember like every time it seemed like the score just completely changed direction. And like, especially like during the beginning, like action sequence, it was literally all over the fucking place. So, um, so let's see. Um, the score is a Oh, the music makes the sound light and almost, uh, oh, it makes it sound like almost like a rom-com at the beginning. The score is aloof. Um, what the fuck is with the score? <laughs> like, I I talk about the score through this throughout my notes, where I'm just like, I have no idea what is going on with with how he decided to score this because it just does. Back to the whimsical music is another thing. Like, it just didn't feel consistent at all, and almost to the point where maybe it is like the movie is inconsistent, and I don't know if that was the problem. Is like because the movie is one part art caper, one part you know, rom-com, one part, like, cat and mouse, supposed to be, like, the sex appeal type thing. Like, it, it... The score is as all over the place as, to me, the movie. It's like, now it, you know, now it's jazzy woodwinds I have in here. Like, it just, it makes no sense to me why the score was written the way it was. Yeah, I, th I think for me, it kind of blended into the background. I didn't it didn't stand out in a good way or a bad way for me. The only phenomenon I would talk about is, I guess there are reasons certain movies, you know, it might have five to six original composed pieces, but the thing you remember is a, I guess a licensed song from a, artist that already made the song obviously in this case nina simone centerman mm -hmm. i think it's tough when you are a composer and an iconic piece of music is used in supplement to your score i don't know if i articulated that the best way but uh i feel like bill conti absolutely gets overshadowed by the one licensed piece of existing music that's in this movie well, is if that absolutely and i would be interested to know if they when they wrote that scene if they knew because you know they don't direct movies in order or anything like that. i wonder if they knew they were going to use center man for that final thing and basically bill conti his job was to deconstruct that song and try and build an original score off of it because it does feel like that song is the centerpiece of this movie you know, with that, that song coupled with that final heist type thing, like that was the, the whole movie basically peaks at that moment. And I just wonder if like somebody had that in their vision, like this is what we're doing. And then Bill Conti was just like, okay, I guess I'll try and work like backwards from this, you know, I'll try and reverse engineer a score based off of this song. I, I, you know what? I never thought about it that way which I mean, I guess it should be obvious, but I think that might absolutely be the case. I could see a director like John McTiernan only having interest in that scene with that song. And then everything else kind of takes second sh or a short shift, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, the score and the movie, I feel like everything's leading up to that. They, there just was not the care put into the rest of the movie. Absolutely. So, with that, let's go ahead and give our final opinions here. <laughs> I think anybody who's listening should have a pretty good idea where we land on this. <laughs> um, I think this movie is pretty bland. 
Uh, I think if you have to put a movie on in the background while something's going on, you can. I would not want to sit down and watch this movie again. Like, like you know, to focus on it. I think it maybe has mm, two, maybe three, if we want to get crazy, like enjoyable scenes that are fun to watch. With that said, to me, it's a YouTube then. Just look up those, you know, the two heists and... Uh, the two heists in the awkward dance, I think, are the... And just because the dance is so awkward, I think it's fun to just watch and be like, what the fuck is happening here? Um, there's another part in the movie, again, just with the awkwardness of the sexuality. Like, and I don't know, maybe it's just my TV is formatted wrong or whatever, but like when the first time they're having dinner, Thomas and Catherine, she gets up to walk away and like they try and do that classic, like she walks away and they kind of like focus on her ass going through the crowd but she was in a dark dress in like the shadows, like her, her butt just disappears into the crowd of people. And I'm like, I don't even like, there was no, there wasn't enough contrast for that to make sense to me when she's trying to get the keys back. But, um, yeah, I, again, at the end of the day, I, I think there's two, maybe three scenes that are worth watching out of the entire movie. And for that reason, I just YouTube it. I don't think you need to watch the whole and you don't even need the whole movie to have context for those scenes. That's the problem. Like you can literally just watch them on their own, like as if somebody was doing like the 24 hour form uh, film festival or like it, it was a, a you know college thesis where you had to shoot a 10 minute, you know, scene like it just that's that's where they are. Uh, I mean, I was going to give it the strongest possible recommend until you told me about, yeah, you're right. Renee's Renee Russo's ass disappears. So, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I'm going to go with basically what McCann says at the end. Like, I don't give a shit about our thieves. Uh, I love Pierce Brosnan. The thing is, I, I love the three leads. I always enjoy Renee Russo dating back to her Lethal Weapon days. Pierce Brosnan, not only is Bond, I found his post-Bond work very charming. Uh, the Matador, for example, mm -hmm. is a, a sleeper movie for me. And Dennis Leary, we already touched on how much we enjoy him and especially what he brings to this movie. Uh, but the script fails all the performances. Um, Pierce Brosnan does what he does. Uh, but this is a bad movie. I, again, inert. There, there's no compelling villain. There's no compelling hero. Hard to make a good movie if you don't have either one of those. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say. I'll, I'll never watch this again. And uh, I'll have to put a little more care into my 90s nostalgia as for, in terms of picking movies. <laughs> you had to be careful about going through that lens, dude. So, well, uh, I mean, if that's it, I think I'm just going to crack my uh, Pepsi one right here and down this real quick and uh, call it a day. Bye. Such bullshit product placement. I mean, <laughs> I'm thirsty. I'm going to go chug my fucking Pepsi one. <laughs> so fucking dumb. Completely agreed. Uh, side note, Brett, you're going to have to isolate your audio there because my cat's being a... You're going to have to save my audio and, and, and cut it out because of my cat. But...